morning we're preaching out of one of my favorite texts in all of the scriptures in a sermon series we're doing on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, before we dive in, uh, I want to let you know a little bit about myself. I was diagnosed with panic disorder when I was 16 years old. If you don't know what panic disorder is, it's basically when your body decides to have a panic attack, a fight or flight response constantly, irrationally, for no reason, over and over and over and over again. So in the course of like three weeks, I would pass out like six times a day, convinced I was having a heart attack, and then got agoraphobia, so I couldn't leave the house because it was, I don't know if you've seen the videos of the goats that faint, but that was kind of like me leaving the house, okay, take one step out of the house, and then I'm just down, I'm out. Um, After the panic disorder diagnosis, the agoraphobia, speaking at a conference, or an event, and for me to share something about depression and anxiety, and then have an organizer come up to me afterwards and say, hey, I don't think it's a good idea for you to talk about the fact that you still struggle with some of these things when you're on stage. And my usual response is, hey, you probably don't want to invite me back, because I'm kind of always going to do that. Uh, there's still, despite lots of efforts, a lot of mental, uh, a lot of uh, stigma around mental health and mental health issues, um, and in particular in the church. There's lots of reasons for this. One is just the general cultural stigma that we have. Two is that the church often responds to mental health issues in kind of abusive ways. Um, you're seen as a second-class Christian. You're seen as someone who doesn't have strong enough faith. Um, you're seen as someone who perhaps is outcast or or is not as accessible as other people. Um, and so I've always felt it was important for Christians to, particularly Christians, to try to um, break through this stigma. There are people in our own congregation who struggle with severe depression and severe anxiety and bipolar disorder and personality disorders and what have you. You can name them all. And yet they're all faithful Christians, and you would not know unless they had told you so. This is the church, the community of believers, united together as one, despite our flaws and despite our differences. Um, there's two approaches that can be taken in, in church. Um, sometimes you have the faith-only approach, which is, say, I'm an anxious person and I'm having panic attacks. A pastor could come to me and say, you just simply don't have enough faith. Your relationship with God is not up to par. Um, And so try as I might, you know, I might really start listening to worship songs exclusively, reading the Bible four times a day, praying five times a day, and still struggle with anxiety, in which case I feel like a failure. And in which case I feel like my faith is not real or is not working somehow. Um, And then you have an entirely different approach, which is kind of a medical scientific approach which is talk therapy, psychotherapy, medicines. And, and, and oftentimes these are seen as two exclusive options. And I want to suggest it's a false dichotomy. Um, that, that as Christians, we should always, particularly when it comes to things like mental health, shoot in both arrows, shoot in both ways. So we should try to reframe our faith in a way that perhaps helps us deal with the stressors of life. And we should perhaps appreciate the gift that God has given us. 
with technology and scientific advances and more understanding about the brain and how the body works and, and take advantage of those things. And I say this to begin with because the passage we'll be looking at this morning is Jesus talking about anxiety. Uh, and so it's one of my favorite passages. It's also one of my least favorite passages, okay? Because Jesus is going to tell us, don't have anxiety. And I really like Jesus, and I'm very committed to his teachings, but sometimes telling someone who has anxiety, don't be anxious, is like telling a depressed person, just be happy. Right? It's just not very useful, as if they hadn't thought of that option. Yeah, I should just, I should just be happy. And so we want to avoid those pitfalls um, as we dig into and take very seriously Jesus' teachings today on anxiety, as we continue on a, a sermon series called the Sermon on the Mount, where we look through Jesus' most famous sermon. So if you have your scriptures, I'd love for you to open up with me to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have them, there should be a hardback Bible, hopefully in a seat, underneath a seat around you. We'll be in Matthew chapter 6, and we'll read from verse 25 to 34. We'll finish up chapter 6 this morning as we look at what Jesus has to say about anxiety and worry in the life of a disciple, of one who follows him. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them all. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you so anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon... And all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles, they seek after all these things, and yet your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, I want to point out in this passage um, three things. What you have here, Jesus gives us three commands two reasons for the commands, and then one alternative way of life. Three commands, two reasons, and one alternative way of life. The three commands he gives us are all actually the same command. Do not be anxious. He says it three times, do not be anxious. And we've got to be clear that this is a command. This is not a suggestion. This is not a self-help book. This is the Lord of all of creation commanding his followers to not have lives dictated by anxiety and worry and fear. And again, like I said, a command like that can be kind of paralyzing to someone like me, who has severe anxiety problems. 
But this is the lifestyle that he's calling his disciples to. We might say it's a non-anxious lifestyle. Sometimes we speak of Jesus calling us to a non-greedy lifestyle or to a non-violent lifestyle. Here he calls us to a non-anxious lifestyle. There's nothing in this passage or in the Gospels to suggest that Jesus calls us to a problem-free lifestyle. We might instead say what Jesus is doing here is saying that we should live carefree, not careless. Do you see the difference there? That we should have carefree lives, not careless lives. It's not that we're apathetic and lazy and don't care about anything. It's that we're free of anxiety and worry and stress over what will happen, how we'll be provided for and taken care of. And Jesus' recommendation is not just good advice. It's wisdom that reflects God's character, His good character. It's wisdom that reflects what God is doing in this work of new creation inaugurated by Jesus and continued through by His Spirit. And it's a command He repeats Three times. Repetition is important. Jesus does not want you to get out of this passage without hearing this. Do not be anxious. One of my favorite uh, stories comes from a scholar that I really like. He was once waiting at a doctor's office in the waiting room with a friend of his, and it was a very long wait. And about an hour and a half later, after every other patient had been seen except for them, a nurse finally comes in and says, Thanks for your patience. We can see you now. And the scholar just trying to be a little snarky, was like, don't thank him for being patient. His Lord commands him to be patient. He doesn't have a choice in the matter. And it's always just struck me as a different way to look at things, right? I don't always think of the commands of Jesus that way. Sometimes I think of them more as recommendations or more as ideals to live up to. But, but he takes it pretty face value. He says, no, the Lord commanded us to do that. This is not something to get a cookie for. This is simple faithfulness and obedience and a response to God's salvation and His redemption in my life. We also need to notice that Jesus models what He teaches here. We've said this before, that Jesus is usually the best interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. So when Jesus talks about, blessed are those who are peacemakers, Jesus Himself is a peacemaker. When he says, blessed are those who are meek, Jesus is meek. When he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, this is Jesus. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, this is Jesus. He is the living interpretation of what it looks like for a person to live out God's will as expressed in the Sermon on the Mount. And when we think about Jesus, we often have a tendency to project our own personalities onto him. So if we were to take a survey or a poll, and studies like this have been done over and over again, tell me about Jesus' personality. And usually what you get is a Jesus that looks a lot like the personality of the person who is answering the survey. I'm reading a book right now called Introverts and the Church, which I love because I'm an introvert. Um, It surprises some people. I just play an extrovert on stage Um, But I'm a severe introvert, so if I were to take the survey, I'd be like, well, Jesus was pretty introverted. You know, in public, he could be charismatic and give a good sermon, but he spent most of his time alone with a small group of friends. He liked to go into solitary by himself and rest and relax and recharge. But if you think about it, Jesus is, for the most part, in the Gospels, presented as a fairly happy, content person. 
He's presented as a person who's not anxious, who's not worried about whether he'll be provided for. Now, that's not to say there are not moments in the gospel where Jesus has hard things happen to him. There are moments of suffering. There are moments of sorrow. He endured conflict. He wept to the tomb of a friend of his who died. He wept over the disobedience of people who wouldn't listen to his pleas. He took on all the evil and sin of the world on the cross. But these seem to be exceptions to the general rule that Jesus was someone who trusted in the goodness of God to provide for him, who did not live a life full of anxiety and worry. I think it's safe to say Jesus led his disciples by example when he gives them this command to not be anxious. Now that's the command. The two reasons Jesus gives us here in this passage um, to not be anxious are very, very interesting. The first one is that we often as human beings overestimate our power. We think we're in control of a whole lot of things that we're really not in control of. We think we can control our circumstances. We think that we can control how much money we make, what we do with that money, what our relationships will be like. Um, At the end of the day, though, that control is largely an illusion. And the truth is we're creatures, just like the birds of the air and just like grass. We're creatures, and we're dependent on God's provision day by day. You can take this back a step farther to when you were born. Did you choose to be born in the nation that you were born in? Did you choose to be born with whatever advantages you may have had education-wise, financially? Did you choose to be born with certain skill sets, intelligence, hard work? social skills. I know a lot of people in my work with special needs children and adults who who weren't born with those things. And I've met a lot of people who were born in countries of poverty and oppression and never even had the opportunities that we have. And so even at the end of the day, when we can say, well, we did work hard for that money and we did work hard and developed a, a character that would help us do that, it still all the way goes back to eventually a gift from God who gave you the ability to work hard, who gave you the ability to learn so well, who gave you the ability to build relationships like that. I mean, do you ever remember before your birth asking God for certain things in your life? Going down a checklist. I certainly don't, because if I did, things would be different. I'd be six foot three. I'd be playing the NBA right now. I'd be born in the Bronx, so I had a little bit of a cool like backstory. I was hardened up. But that's just not the case, right? We're not, we're not in control of all of our circumstances. And a lot of people have already experienced this. It takes one phone call, or one accident, or one injury for your entire life to be thrown upside down. You're really in less control than we like to pretend that we are. And so worrying is kind of useless in that sense. Because we're worrying about what we'll be able to control in the future. And if we think about it, we're really not as in control as we would like to be. We also overestimate our power because we think that worrying helps. If you're like me, I like to play scenarios over in my mind for four or five hours at a time. I'll say this, and then they'll say that, and then I'll respond with this. 
checkmate. I'll say this, they might respond with that, I'll respond with this, checkmate. I'll say this, they don't care, horrible situation no matter what. Four hours later, I'm left more anxious, more concerned, and no more equipped to handle whatever situation might come my way in the future. Jesus mentions here that who can add an hour to their life by worrying? And, and, and doctors now would tell us, you're probably taking away hours of your life by worrying, by stressing out, by being anxious. We just don't have that kind of control to fix all of our problems, to be prepared for everything. Lastly, I would, I would say we overestimate our power because we often are unable to identify our blessings. And this, I think, is a really important point. When I look back at my life, many of the things that I now consider some of the biggest blessings that God ever put in my way, I would never have chosen. The option was presented to me. Do you want to experience this, go through this? I would have said, no, thank you. I'd like a job, promotion, I'd like a raise, I'd like a boat, and a more comfortable life. And now I thank God that I didn't get my way. Because I learned so much about who He is. I've learned so much about how good He is. I've had so much satisfaction and fulfillment in my own life. I get to travel and talk to lots of people, and and I've almost never found somebody who says the biggest blessing God ever gave them, ultimately, was a really easy life. It's in the difficult times in life that we're blessed. When a family member dies, when we lose our job, when relationships crumble. It's not that those things are good, but those things are where God shows up to bring good out of bad. And they often end up being the biggest blessings that we have. I got a picture from a friend uh, last week, and he was on his 16th, 16th exotic vacation this summer. And he sent me this picture from a beautiful beach and said and that the little caption of the picture was, Blessed. And I've thought, since we began this Sermon on the Mount, and and Jesus tells us who's blessed, I've I've been kind of obsessed with, what does that actually mean? When and why should we use that word blessed? Are we sure that having an exorbitant amount of money to be able to go on vacation after vacation after vacation is what it means to be blessed? I mean, if I know if I was there, I'd be like, I'm blessed. But perhaps it's when we are forced to look at the needy around us and serve them. Perhaps it's when we're forced to reflect on who we are and the mistakes that we've made and and, and our path towards God in the future that we're truly blessed. And so we we overestimate our power in so many ways. I think the second reason is that we underestimate God's goodness. The reason anxiety is is a useless practice is because we underestimate how much we can control and we or we overestimate how much we control and we underestimate how good God is. Jesus gives illustrations here of birds and of lilies. Lilies in, in the Greek here is a catch all term for lots of these colorful flowers that would grow in Galilee where Jesus was from. And you can imagine Jesus sitting outside throughout his life marveling at nature, at God's creation. And at the fact that God continues to sustain and take care of his creation. Jesus watched birds flying and singing in the Galilean hills, just enjoying life. They never worked. They never clocked in or clocked out. 
And yet mostly they were alive and well. He watched thousands of flowers growing throughout Galilee. He marveled at their fragile beauty. They could be so easily destroyed, but yet their beauty came from no work. They didn't spend hours in the mirror. They didn't toil or spin as if to create clothing. It was simply the fact that God chose to make them that beautiful. Behind all of this is this deep, deep, powerful theological assumption that there is a robust sense of the goodness of the Father. When Jesus describes the Father in the Gospels, it is almost always in terms and descriptions that, that, that are aimed to expand our imagination of just how good and how life-giving the Father is. The Father seeks to give us good gifts. The Father has good pleasure to give us the kingdom and to give us His Holy Spirit. The Father takes care of creation. The Father here is not just a creator. He's not just a farmer and a baker. He's also a tailor and a beautician, too. He doesn't just create basic things. He creates beautiful things. And then he sustains those things. Sometimes Christians act like we're, or believe like we're theists, that we believe in a personal God, but we we really act like deists. People who believe that God's far away, impersonal, not involved in creation. And so when we see the birds, when we see the grass, or at night when we're looking up at the stars, we, we see this largely as just the natural world happening the way it's supposed to happen. God started it, and this is just what continues to occur. But in the Scriptures, you have a whole different worldview. In the Scriptures, the only reason anything exists right now is because at this very second, God the Father thinks it's good for it to exist. The moon only rises in the Psalms because God says, Moon, rise. Sun, come up. The lions are only fed in the Scriptures because God decides to feed them. God is the sustainer of life, not only the creator of life. We claim to believe and trust in Him and and to be sustained by Him, but in our actions we often do everything for ourselves, trusting in ourselves, and then becoming anxious about whether God will provide for us. But very deep in the biblical narrative is this sense of God's providence, that God lovingly watches over and takes care of His people. From the very beginning, most kind of paradigmatic story in the Scriptures, you have um, God's people coming out of Egypt in the Exodus, and God provides daily manna and quail for them. Abundance, not scarcity, is the mark of God's care for creation. There's much God will never run out of things to graciously provide for us, whether it be food or clothing or whatever the thing we are stressing and anxious and worrying about. But we're easily tempted to think there's not enough. That's kind of the culture that we live in, a scarcity worldview, where there's only so much in the world, and so we've got to make sure, make sure we get our fair share of it. Jesus, though, wants to burst through that and let you look at the world in an abundance worldview. You go, God is a loving God who has more than we could ever imagine. And he he is not pleased to keep this from us. 
It would be like Bill Gates, his son gets an inheritance. Let's say he's got $75 million in the bank, and then he loses a quarter. And he spends four or five hours worrying about that quarter, searching for that quarter. You'd be like, what are you, what are you doing? Who cares about a quarter? You got $75 million in the bank. Now, unless this quarter was like a collector's item worth a billion dollars, this is useless. This is not accomplishing anything. You need to recognize how much is actually there and how small the issue is that you are so consumed about and so worried about that you are allowing to dictate your life and your emotions. In a world where we view um, life as... Uh, and, and, and provisions as scarce, we can't help but be a world of injustice and violence. Because it's assumed under that worldview that our only chance for survival is to have more than other people. But Jesus is trying again to get us to break out of this line of thinking. One scholar, Samuel Wells, says this, The problem with the human imagination is, is simply not large enough to take in all that God is, and all that God has to give. We're just simply overwhelmed. God's inexhaustible creation, His limitless grace, His relentless mercy, His enduring power, His fathomless love, it's just too much to contemplate, to assimilate, to understand. This is a language of abundance. And if humans turn away from it, out of a misguided but understandable sense of self-protection, bad things come. Injustice and violence show up. And the abundance that God gives needs to, and is meant to be made manifest through the lives of people who have been so transformed by God. The church, the trust that we have in God to provide for us is not an irrational gesture across the chaos of life. It's a witness to the very character of God and His creation and His role as the sustainer of that creation. Some have criticized this text. They've criticized this teaching by noticing there are things that happen like birds die, sometimes in large amounts. They don't get provided for. And sometimes there are famines, and you have large groups of people who do not have provisions to live and eat and, and clothe themselves. Sometimes there's droughts, sometimes there are hurricanes. To these criticisms, we must say, first, this is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking to his disciples with the assumption that they have more or less what they need to do their job. And so they should not be focused and consumed on acquiring more. They should not be worried about what will come in the future. Jesus is talking really more about those who have what is necessary than those who are being oppressed or those who are poor or those who are in desperate need. And it's the church's job there to step up and to take care. Even if there's a famine, even if there's a drought, even if there's a natural disaster, globally, looking across the world, it's not that we've run out of resources. It's not that God in His abundance can no longer or will no longer supply provisions to humanity. It's that a few of us have stockpiled them in barns and storehouses. 
and are perhaps less willing to share with those who find themselves in need. The church is not the church if it's not a group of people willing to share what God has provided for them with those in need. Precisely because of the trust that we have that God is good. That we can't ever overestimate the goodness of God. So three commands, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. Two reasons, we overestimate our power, we underestimate God's goodness, and then he gives us one alternative action. Jesus says, instead, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and those things will be added to you. We've noticed in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus, especially when he presents to us somewhat idealistic um, commands or terms, um, never leaves us with just this impossible goal. Don't be anxious. The end. Have a nice week. Well, this is difficult. We might not ever perhaps get there perfectly. But Jesus does almost always offer us a few small but possible steps to take that help us achieve and get closer to the goal of Christian trust. A lifestyle of of non-anxiety. And the alternative Jesus gives us here is to seek the kingdom. To seek God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. To seek righteousness. To work on our spiritual formation. To build up our character in Christ. By reading the scriptures. In prayer. With fellowship with other believers. Through serving others. Through giving to the poor and to the needy. In a consumeristic society, we are supposed to, as Jesus' followers, as God's children, be distinguished by a countercultural stubbornness, a refusal to live according to the rules and means of the world around us, a refusal to hoard and think that the world is a scarce economic system, and instead to trust in God's goodness and abundance and provision, and freely share with those in need. And people on mission, people who are focusing on bringing God's will to earth, on developing their own character as Christ-like people, they often don't have time to worry. They often don't have time to be anxious. One of the things I learned in, in many years, and thousands and thousands of dollars of therapy, this is free, is that if I'm faced with a pattern of pacing around or laying in bed or, or whatever and, and just running through anxious thoughts for four hours, one of the best things I can do is go do something productive and meaningful and satisfying with those four hours. Go do something that makes a difference in my life and the life of other people. And not only does that dissipate the anxiety and stress that was already there, it, it even kind of shoves it out of the way. There's not a whole lot of room for that type of anxiety when we are so focused on the things of of God. Jesus says tomorrow takes care of itself. This is a bit of wisdom Jesus gives here. He's, He's talking about focusing on the now. Instead of focusing on tomorrow, focus on what you can do today. Put all of your focus and energy into 
what matters, what matters eternally today, in this moment, in these hours that we do have. And so I'll wrap it up this morning with, with some tips from someone who struggles with anxiety, from someone who has read and reread and taught and preached and studied this passage more times than I can remember. And they go like this, just a, a handful of them. I do think people who struggle with anxiety need to reframe their faith, need to reframe their view of God. Despite my clinical diagnoses of of anxiety disorders, I do find that when I'm more faithful in prayer and in Scripture, and when I'm meeting more regularly with fellow believers to encourage me, to remind me of truth, that I'm able to to live this out more faithfully. But it's not always just a matter of faith, like I said at the beginning. It's not always just a matter of you trying your best to believe a certain thing and then still being anxious and all of a sudden you're a failure or faith didn't work or God failed you somehow. Because so I would say you should, you should also probably look at what the, the medical community may have to offer you. I'm a huge believer in therapy. I think even if you don't have problems, you need to talk to a therapist about those problems. I can tell you this, none of us have gotten as old as we are right now, and I'm pretty old, none of us has gotten there without some severely traumatic, scarring things happening to us in our lives. I think any human being can benefit from talk therapy. And as one who keeps track of, of studies and things of that nature, I think we're increasingly being shown that talk therapy actually, in a lot of cases, is more effective than new medicine that we have. A good, a good, a good, a good therapy uh, routine regimen that we can get involved in. But there's no shame in taking medicine. I think you got to shoot in, in in both ways. Yes, reframe your faith, and yes, go see the doctor. Just the same as if you had cancer. Just the same as if you had a broken leg. Now pray for God to heal you. And then go get an MRI and take some chemo. Those two things aren't, aren't exclusive. That's a false dichotomy. They go together. That's part of God's goodness in creation. Is that we've been, we've been given those gifts, those capabilities. There's lots of lifestyle changes we can make very easily in our culture to help us um, lower anxiety levels, help us to trust more, be more, um, some of these include exercising. Some of these include creating deeper friendships, especially within the body of Christ. We've got four small groups. A lot of them are coming up on um, one of their monthly meetings in the next week. Um, I think a lot of us in these small groups can testify that it makes a real tangible difference in our lives. Being able to meet and pray and laugh and share and be encouraged, and tell truth to one another. And then the, the maybe most just basic lifestyle change I could say is, turn off the cable news. I don't know if you remember, a few months ago there were two people running for president. It was a pretty crazy time, and I gave that advice back then. Um, and I think the advice still stands today. 
Um, you show me someone who's very anxious, very fearful, and very angry at people not like them, and I'll show you someone who watches cable news 24-7. Because it's actually what it's created to do. I mean, there's no secret, I think, to anybody. The whole point of cable news, to have you tune in all the time to see some news, is to conjure up fear in your heart. It's to conjure up sensational stories. Which is not to say there aren't some worrisome things happening in the world. It's not to say that we shouldn't be acquainted and familiar with the news. But maybe like an hour a day. An hour and a half a day. These are easy steps we can take, I think, to get more closely faithful to Jesus' teachings here. And we end not only acknowledging that Jesus is the interpretation, the example in the Sermon on the Mount of what he is teaching, but also that as Christians, our faith is centered in Jesus' work. The ultimate reason we trust God is because of what he's done on our behalf through his Son and what he continues to do through his Spirit in our lives, through our lives. Romans 8 says this, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I mean, this is, I think, the ultimate anti-venom to the poison of anxiety. The God of the universe gave up his son so that you might have life. This is the highest sacrifice possible. Do you think he's going to get cheap when it comes to other things? Do you think all of a sudden he's not going to graciously give you what you need? I know in my own life, in times of extreme anxiety, one of the best, again, kind of antidotes has been to think eternally. And to think that no matter how bad the situation might be, no matter how, how badly this outcome might be, turn out, ultimately, this is a blip on my identity and on my story. I'm part of a salvation project from a loving God that began before I was born. I'm sealed with the Spirit for all of eternity to enjoy life with God. And because of that trust, I can face any situation without having to worry if all of a sudden God is going to decide, no, it's not worth it. I can't, I can't give that. He, he, already, he already gave us His Son. And it's on that faith and that commitment that we are able to surrender our, our anxieties, surrender our worries, and trust in the abundance and provision of our good, good Father. Will you pray with me?